I'd prepared kind of a light-hearted, kid-friendly teaching for today as we are in this second week of looking at, uh, at Joshua. It just seemed pretty irrelevant or inappropriate. But I think there's some things here in this account of the Israelites going into the Promised Land that maybe can be helpful to us today. And I want to just take a little bit of time to talk about those. We saw last week that the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River. They've come from the east side of the Jordan. They've crossed the, the, Jordan, uh, the Jordan River, and right across from them then is the city of Jericho that God has said he will give to them. And so they do a few things before we get actually to the fall of Jericho. One is that while the, while the, um, the Ark of the Covenant being held by the priests are still in the Jordan River, remember it's flood time in the Jordan, and uh, God has separated the waters, they are crossing on dry land, and God, through Joshua, gives some important instructions to the Israelites. Here's what he says, this is in Joshua chapter 4. So he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what did these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that they might always fear the Lord your God. So... Joshua picks one guy, I'm picturing a pretty big burly guy, to take a stone out of the Jordan River and to take it over to the other side and to build a monument out of it. I was doing some landscaping and had a college guy helping me and we needed to move some stones. And I had tried picking them up. I could not even pick up the stones. So I thought maybe between the two of us, this guy and I could could maybe lift them so we got on each side and I kind of kind of pulled it up and then it was really awkward and so he said well here let me take it and he took it and <laughs> moved it over and I thought oh to be 50 years younger and then I thought no 50 years ago I was not in that kind of shape so they build this monument and and Joshua says we're doing this for two reasons one is so that you will have sort of a visual aid in telling your children what God has done here and you remember, we've, we've taken this on as our missional mandate to help next generations, you know, become followers of Jesus to bless a broken world. And, you know, this week, I would guess we have all thought about how grateful we are that, that Barry and Cindy Whitehill and Dave and Linda Bartlett did that very thing, passed on to their children what they know to be true about Jesus Christ, and that, that Ben and Aaron did that for Charlie and for Bailey. That's what God tells us we are to do. The other thing that God says here is this. So not, it's not just for us, but it's so all the world will know that God is a mighty, true, he is the one true God. If we have time, we'll come back to that in a minute. So that's one of the first things they do. Second thing is God says you need to, to circumcise all the men. Remember, that was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision was the sign of being a part of God's covenant people. It had not been done while they were in the wilderness. So God says, now as you begin your new life in the promised land, all of the males need to be circumcised. So that was a practice that was done by the Jews, continues to this day when when a baby boy is eight days old. It's not based on his faith or really anything about him. It's because of the faith of God's people that that that, that child becomes a part of that that covenant of faith. 
And so they were to, to do that. The next thing they were to do, well, let me just read you how it's described. This is in Joshua chapter 5. So on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. A couple of really neat things here is... We saw through circumcision that God is kind of renewing this covenant that he had made 500 years before that with Abraham and for his descendants. Now they celebrate the Passover, which is kind of a renewal of the, the covenant that God had made through, through Moses when he promised to bring them into the promised land. And notice what happens with manna then. When they come into the promised land, they no longer need God to provide this heavenly bread and it stops. People who don't believe the Bible will say one of two things about things that they have trouble accepting. They will say either there's some, there's some natural explanation for it, it isn't really any kind of divine action, or they will say it's myth and legend and didn't happen at all. Manna is a good example of that. Manna was this something that we don't really know that God provided every morning the manna would be there on the ground and they would take it and grind it up, use it kind of like flour, eat it, it tasted good. Um, and so people who don't believe that it was God doing that will say, well, that's just a natural kind of thing. There are some plants that, that ooze out some stuff that tastes kind of sweet and maybe that's what it was. How do we know that this manna was a supernatural thing from God? Because there was one thing about it that wasn't natural, right? Do you remember what that was? Every day they would get the manna, and what would happen to it at night? It would rot. So every day you had to get a new supply of manna, except when? Before the Sabbath. On Friday they had to pick two days worth because they were not to work on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day. How, how could that be if it was just some natural thing? It wasn't a natural thing. It was a gift from God. And now that gift is no longer needed, and the manna stops. So now they've come into the promised land and they're getting ready to uh, to take the city of Jericho as God has commanded them to do. We had a, a little video of this. I think we'll not uh, take time to watch it, but it tells this amazing story about how they conquered Jericho. Remember, Jericho is this walled fortress there located down by the Jordan River down south, pretty close to the Dead Sea. And um, so what God tells them to do is get the army together. Yeah, let's go get them. And God says, and just walk in silence around the city. So they go to Jericho and the army's there and the Ark of the Covenant is leading the way. And all they do is walk around the city once. I was trying to think what it would be like to be in Jericho. I mean, you're in this impenetrable fortress with these huge walls. You know they can't get into you. And you'd be up there on the walls taunting them and making fun of them as they walk around the city. And then the next day they come and walk around the city. And the third day, and then it's starting to get kind of creepy. And I'm wondering, what are these people doing what's going on and we've heard stories about god uh, their god and how he's done things and this is becoming really crazy they do that for six days on the seventh day they walk around the city seven times and then they blow trumpets the ram horn trumpets you know and they shout and what happens the walls came tumbling down right now 
I want to talk just a, just a couple minutes about Jericho, because I think this is a really a good object lesson for us. I said people who don't believe the Bible will say either that things have natural explanations or they didn't happen at all. A lot of people said that about Jericho. That's a, that's a myth. That's a made-up... St- I mean, you don't really believe that, do you? Until archaeologists have discovered the ruins of Jericho. And if we could look at the, the pictures of Jericho, it's one of the places Sally and I were able to visit when we were in Israel. So um, there's kind of a, a view, probably from a drone or something, um, of the of the the archaeological site. So Jericho wasn't a huge city in terms of size. It was small enough that the whole army could get around it. Um, and the next, in the next picture, so it was a hill then. And they wondered, was is there something there? Is that just a hill? And that's called a tell. And so they began to dig into it, actually back in around 1850, and discovered there were ruins of cities there. In fact, maybe as many as 20 cities at different times building there until there was this huge mound. So now if you go today, the ruins of Jericho are way down there, and you stand on the top kind of looking down at it. Let's go to the next one. That gives you a little idea of what the walls were like. That was like a house in the middle of it. So those two things on the sides would have been the wall. I mean, we're not talking like a domino thing where you just knock out a block and it all falls over. These were huge, sometimes called casement walls, huge, thick walls. Now, archaeologists don't all agree about the date of what happened here, but they all agree about these facts. One is, these walls were violently destroyed. They didn't decay, they didn't crumble like they would over time. They were violently destroyed. Secondly, the ruins that they find in the city, the city was not plundered or looted. Even though the walls were violently destroyed, the city was not looted. Third, the city was burnt. After the walls fell, the city was burnt. And fourth, they found these huge containers of grain in the city. Now, let me tell you why that's important, and we'll kind of wind this up. What time of the year did um, did this take place? Remember, when they, when they crossed the Jordan, we know the Jordan was at flood stage because it was harvest time. And a city like Jericho, that's a fortress, doesn't need to worry about an army coming and attacking them. What they would worry about is an army besieging them. The city would be surrounded and they would just starve out the people. Until they ran out of food, they wouldn't let anybody in or out, and then the people would surrender. So a city like Jericho, at harvest time, would bring in huge amounts of grain, store it in the city, so if they were besieged, they would have food to eat. And then they would eat that, that grain during the year. If they had to surrender, they would destroy the grain so it wouldn't go to their enemies. Now, what did archaeologists find? They found these huge containers of grain burnt on top. So, what can they determine from that? One is, this destruction took place at harvest time because of this huge amount of grain. Secondly, the people didn't weren't besieged or they would have eaten the grain. Third, they would have destroyed the grain if they had surrendered. So they weren't besieged. They didn't surrender. The city is destroyed and it was burnt. To me, that just fits exactly what God says happened in Jericho in the Bible. Now, the reason I tell you that, maybe maybe this seems strange to you, but I just feel like there's such a danger for us as Christians as falling into this sort of cultural mindset of the the Bible is almost 
in fiction, or it's at least stories for kids in Sunday school. No, not for us. That's not the case. This is real historic truth. This is a reliable account of what God has been doing in the world. And I don't believe we could face a week like we have faced today. I don't believe next Friday we could gather to celebrate the fact of Ben's life and Bailey and Charlie if we didn't believe that this is absolutely true. It is. Ah, we're out of time. Let me pray. We're going to have communion together. Lord, I thank you for the truth of what we read in your word. Thank you that even though there's, there's things that we don't understand, again and again, we find support in things like archaeology that just remind us again that your word is true and historically accurate, and we thank you for that. And as we come now to celebrate communion, I thank you that that's true not just for Joshua in the Old Testament. It's true for that New Testament Joshua, Jesus as well that we read about his life and his death, it's true. And when, when we read of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is true. It was a historical event, and it is his name that we gather together now. Amen. All right, we're going to celebrate communion in these couple minutes that are left, and this is a great thing for us to do. Uh, I bet a lot of you, like me, kept thinking, what if it had been me getting that phone call this week, you know, saying that it was my son and my granddaughters, you know, that had died. And I thought, I just, I would just have one thing to hold on to. And it's my faith, you know. And Dave said that too. How does anybody endure this without faith? And one of the things that has stood out in my mind a lot is I think about God the Father watching his son die. And allowing it to happen because of his great love for us. So on that very night that Jesus was doing what we just talked about happening 1,500 years before Jesus, celebrating the Passover, celebrating God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, now Jesus takes that that unleavened bread and he says, "This, this is... Now it's to help you remember something more important than than release from slavery in Egypt. It's to help you understand that you can be released from the power of Satan and sin in your life. You can be forgiven and come back into a relationship with God. And it's going to take place through my broken body. So he took the unleavened bread and he gave thanks to God for it and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way then, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we do this now. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I just invite you to join with us in this uh, celebration. Uh, take a piece of bread when it comes. Think about what it means. Go ahead and eat it when you feel ready to do so. Then we'll be passing the tray with the cups. Um, the Bible does give some warnings about this. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, um, or if it's a child who maybe hasn't come yet to a point of faith, um, the Bible would encourage us not to participate, and you'd be better off maybe just kind of watching as this happens. So I'll ask those who are serving to come forward, and I'm just going to say a word of prayer as they do so. Lord, we come uh, with great thankfulness 
that you, Father, were willing to let your Son die for us. We remember and celebrate that now, humbly and gratefully. Amen.